I'm going to start with a bit of a warning. Big surprise, right? (laughs) Unless we are a little careful in how we read this gospel, there is a significant chance that we are going to misunderstand it. And my saying that may come as a bit of a surprise. I mean, after all, what is hard to understand about what Jesus says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That seems pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Even sounds quite nice, actually. So why the warning? Why the need for caution? Well, it's because there are two mistakes that we are inclined to make here, one potentially much more serious than the other, but both of which can cause us to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. The first mistake, the less serious one, would be to think that what Jesus is saying here is that the greatest commandment is the only commandment. Just do this and don't worry about the rest. This is the only thing that's really important. The rest is incidental at best. I would submit to you that that is not what Jesus is saying. The context within which this story appears helps to make this evident. Jesus is engaged here in a series of arguments with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And these arguments take up the better part of two whole chapters of Matthew's Gospel. It all begins when the religious leaders question Jesus about the authority that he has to conduct himself the way that he does. Who gave you permission to do the things that you're doing? Who gave you permission to say the things that you're saying? And and that's it. I mean, they're off and running. From that point on, it is one argument after another. Arguments about the kingdom of God, arguments about the Messiah, arguments about Rome, arguments about resurrection, and on and on and on and on. And behind all of those controversial questions lurks the one question that is on everybody's mind, the one thing that everyone in the crowd is wondering about. Who is this guy? (laughs) Is he a learned and faithful rabbi? Is he a dangerous zealot? Is he a harmless crank? Or is he the Messiah? When the Pharisees ask Jesus which is the greatest commandment, they're trying to answer that question. They're trying to get a sense of how Jesus understood all the law and the prophets. Their attempt to identify a greatest commandment was an established practice. This is something that rabbis did to try to get to the heart of God's covenant. This was a practice that the rabbis had been using for centuries before Jesus came along. You would ask one rabbi and say, what's the heart of the covenant? And they would say, well, it's easy, it's this. And you would ask another rabbi, no, no, it's this. And they would go back and forth amongst themselves, arguing about which was the greatest commandment. In other words, what the Pharisees are not doing is asking Jesus to just boil it all down for us to one pithy little aphorism, right? Give it to us on a bumper sticker. They are asking Jesus to give them some sense of how to organize all the many questions that inevitably emerge any time you're trying to live a faithful life. Questions about the kingdom, questions about Rome, questions about resurrection, questions about the Messiah, and on and on and on. So what Jesus does is give them a way of sorting through and organizing all those questions. 
Let's not make the mistake of thinking that what Jesus is saying is that the greatest commandment is the only commandment. We need to say more. Okay, so that's the first potential mistake. What about the second potential mistake? The second one, a little trickier, much more dangerous. It is this. We should not fall into the trap of thinking that we know what love is. Now that may sound silly. How could we not know what love is? We experience love in our relationships with our families and our friends. We recognize love when we see others giving of themselves in extraordinary acts of sacrifice and service. We even have some sense of what love must be by virtue of our awareness of the goodness and the beauty of the world. That's not wrong, but that is not the whole story. Our experience of love, our experience of love, our awareness of the way that it binds us together with others, and even the way that love binds together the whole world, all of that is indeed an intimation of love. It is a sign of love, but it is not the source of love. It is not the essence of love. And when we mistake our awareness and our experience of love, the intimations that we have in our relationships in the world, when we mistake that as the essence of love or the reality or the source of love, then we risk falling into sentimentality. Because real love is more compassionate and more caring and more fierce and more dangerous than anything that we are likely to imagine. And we hear something about the difference between our experience of love and the reality of love from Jesus himself. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It is his love that shows us what love is. We are to love as he does, not as we would or as the world does. And we hear that echoed again in the first epistle of John. John writes, let us love one another for love is from God. In this is love. Not that we loved God because we didn't, but that God loved us. In other words, we have to understand love chiefly in terms of God's love for us given to us in Jesus Christ rather than in terms of what we think of as our love for God. There's a passage in Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, that I have always found especially helpful for elucidating the nature of love. Some of you may have heard me speak of this before. One of the characters in the novel, the very saintly Orthodox priest, Father Zosima, makes a distinction between what he calls love in dreams and love in action. Love in dreams, says Zosima, is a wonderful and beautiful thing. We will even give our lives for what we think of as love, says Zosima. If only the ordeal does not last too long and is soon over with everyone looking on and applauding as though we're on stage. Love in action is different. Love in action, says Zosima, is a harsh and dreadful thing, because love in action is work. It is oftentimes really hard work. Love in action is labor and fortitude 
and is defined first and foremost in terms of the labor and the fortitude with which God loves us. Love is probably not going to bring you happiness, says Zosima, but love anyways, because love is the path to life. So there's our second potential mistake. Let us not fall into the trap of thinking that the way that we think about love is the same way that Jesus thought about love. And our first potential mistake, you'll recall, has to do with thinking that Jesus is saying that the greatest commandment is the only commandment. If we manage to avoid both of those pitfalls, we may be able to hear these words in a new way. We may be able to hear them not so much as a command, as an invitation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. What do we do that involves our hearts? What do we do that involves our minds? What do we do that involves our souls and our lives? Everything, right? There is no part of us, there is no thing that we ever do that does not involve all three of those things. We are integrated beings. We are composite beings. Our minds don't exist in isolation from our hearts. Neither do our minds and our hearts exist in isolation from our bodies. We live integrated lives, or at least we try to, or at least we want to. <laughs> what that means is that there is no part of our lives that should not be ordered by our love for God and God's love for us. Anytime we try to do something with our hearts or with our minds or with our souls, we are to do it in a way that aligns whatever it is we're doing to God's love. Loving God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind means nothing other than living in a way that offers every dimension of our lives to God. Another way of saying that would be to say that there is no part of our lives that we should ever feel is unspiritual or off-limits to God. Everything we do, every moment of our lives has spiritual significance. The only question is whether or not the spiritual significance of the various dimensions of our lives is going to be aligned to the love of God or not. Either way, it will have spiritual consequences. Are the relationships that we share with our families and our friends one of the means that we can use to glorify God? Yes. Is the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis one of the means that we can use to glorify God? Yes. Is the way that we spend our time or the way that we spend our money or the way that we take part in the life of the community around us, are those all ways that we can use to glorify God? Yes, of course. The more that we align the dimensions of our lives to God, the more fully God is able to transform us into vehicles of his grace, to our lives being the place where his glory is manifest. As we surrender more and more of our lives to God, then we're better able to experience the love that God has for us. We, we become better sensitized to what love really is. We learn to see ourselves more clearly and to view our lives in light of the love of God. And we learn to love ourselves unselfishly. And that not only affects our relationship to God, it affects our relationship to others. So 
not incidentally, learning to fulfill the first commandment that Jesus gives is the means whereby we learn how to fulfill the second commandment that Jesus gives to us. It is by learning how to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind that we learn to love our neighbor. All of those go together. Love of God, love of neighbor, and love of self. It's the priority between them that makes the difference. If we put ourselves first and our love for God and our love for our neighbor second or third or whenever, (laughs) then our love for them will never be anything other than a selfish thing aimed at gratifying our own ego. If we put our neighbor first and our love for, our, for God and ourselves second or third, then our love will never be anything more than a never-ending series of exhausting obligations. But put God first, then we open ourselves to the source of real love, love in action, love that bears with us, love that is grounded in the labor and the fortitude of God himself. It is that love that enables us to learn how to love ourselves and how then to love our neighbor. Now, we never practice love just as individuals. We practice love as a community, as a congregation. We practice love. The two campaigns that we're running right now are both intended to help us align the dimensions of the life of the congregation to God. Who is it that God is calling us to be as a people not just as individuals, but as a community of faith? How do we open the dimensions of our life together as a community of faith to the love of God so that we can share that love with others? It may seem that these two commandments ask something of us. Love God, love our neighbors. Okay, there is some truth to that. These commandments do require something, but it is just as accurate to say that these two commandments offer something to us. They invite us to open more of our hearts and more of our minds and more of our lives to God so that we might thereby experience more of the grace and the power and the love that God has for us. When we are obedient to Jesus' command to love, then we find that we ourselves are loved to a degree that exceeds our every expectation. And we find thereby that we are able to then love in ways that we might now not be able to imagine. So let us be obedient to the command to love. Let us respond to the invitation to receive God's love so that our lives would be a testimony to his love, to the honor and glory of his name. Amen.